If you are interested in trying to improve the outcomes for youth who age out of foster care, then this podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Lynn Tanini, founder of Aging Out Institute, an organization dedicated to sharing resources and strategies that help youth who have to age out of the system be able to transition to independence successfully. Now grab something to take notes and get ready for some great information. Hello and welcome to Episode 6 of Aging Out Institute's podcast series, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Our guest today is Nikita Ross. Nikita is the founder and executive director of an organization called Resilient Me in Arizona. Well, welcome Nikita and so glad you could join us today for our podcast. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak about uh, my organization and myself, my experience in foster care. Well, you're very welcome. We're so happy to have you here today. So why don't we go ahead and get started with that? Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how is it that you got connected with the foster care system? Yes. So I am currently the founder and executive director at uh, Resilient Me, which is a nonprofit dedicated to working with youth who are aging out of the foster care system. So we work with youth ages 15 through 21 who have experienced the foster care system. And I started the organization because I myself was in foster care for most of my childhood. The first time I went in, I, I, I want to say I was around eight and I aged out. Um, and so actually at 18, I, had, I was pregnant with uh, my first daughter and three days after high school graduation, I, I gave birth to her. And a few short months later, she and I ended up homeless because at 18, I uh, left the foster care system. I then uh, begged the state to take me back because uh, in most states, and, and I was in Illinois at the time, you can stay on until you're 21. And so the state obliged and uh, provided me with housing. And that helped uh, me to start on the path of independence. The, the thing is, so I, I did that and, and that was helpful. Um, but in hindsight, I realized that tangible housing, that shelter is so important, but I also needed other skill sets uh, that I didn't possess. And so uh, the, the road to independence for me was a long road. And I mean, independence as far as uh, not relying on any kind of government assistance that that took me years to develop the skill set and the the belief in myself and um, the goals and the supports to be able to be fully independent. Wow. I, well, I aged out as well. I did not have as difficult a time. I had kinship care at the time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was very fortunate that when I aged out at 18, I was actually already in college and um, and I had my family support, extended family support. So I, I always tell people, you know, yes, I did age out of foster care, but there are so many youth that have so many more struggles than my sister and I did. So I'm so glad that ultimately it, it did work out for you. Thank you, Lynn. I, I hear people um, because around uh, Phoenix, which is where I am now, I often speak uh, to groups of people about my story and my organization. And I hear people say similar to what you're saying. Yes, I was there, but, and I always respond with, it's not a competition. It's one circumstance because I was homeless, because I experienced homelessness and and another person um, did not, does not mean that my experience was worse. Um, Sometimes people who are lucky enough to have kinship care 
have very traumatic experiences with their family. So just the fact of not being with our biological parents in itself can be traumatic for individuals. And so it's, I always uh, feel a little, I don't know, just uneasy when I hear people say, but, because it's, it's not, you know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's an experience that I wish no person had to go through. You know what? And it's an excellent point, And I'm glad you brought that up. I'm going to try to keep that in mind <laughs> moving <laughs> forward when I'm talking to people. <laughs> so then what, what is the path that took you to starting Resilient Me? Thank you. That's a good question. So I, I, I told you the path was long. So I got the housing and then shortly after this date, I, I aged out at 21 and then I got on what's called section eight, which is uh, government assisted housing. I was on that for years and I, I worked part-time minimum wage jobs. Um, a couple of reasons. One, because if I made too much money, I would lose my section eight. Um, but two, I didn't have the skill set or at least I didn't think I did to apply for uh, different jobs. And so after doing that for probably 10 years, I, so at the time when I was homeless, I was actually in college as well. I uh, was blessed enough to do well in high school. So uh, my daughter and I were in family housing and we, in the state of Illinois, if you experience foster care, your, co- your uh, college education is paid for at any state school. I'm desperately side note, I'm working on that in Arizona or trying to figure out how we can get that done in Arizona, but back to Illinois. And so in, in, when I was in college, I got money for housing as well. And it was in the form of a reef reimbursement from the school, as far as my uh, grants. And when I got the check, I was supposed to pay my uh, rent for the semester. However, Lynn, I had never gotten a lump sum of money in my entire life. And, and Lynn, in hindsight, it wasn't even like a tremendous amount of money. It was probably a couple thousand dollars, like what, three or four months worth of rent. And, but to me, it was like a million dollars. It was, I was just so floored with receiving a lump sum of money. And I, I purchased things. I got the baby a new stroller. I bought a stereo, just buying things. Cause I had never, remember I'm 18. And so this was like, Oh my goodness. And so I, I, that's how we ended up homeless. I, I did not manage the funds well. And so then I, I, and so back to the, I begged the state to take me back. They did. And then I did the, the uh, jobs, the minimum wage jobs for about 10 years. And then I begged my school. And I also, because I was in school and, and young and mismanaging money, I, I flunked out. So I didn't pass any of my courses. So after about 10 years of working the minimum wage jobs, and I, I wrote to my school and applied and said, please take me back again. I promise I'll do better this time. They believed in me, thank goodness. And they did let me come back. And um, I did really well. And then I was a research assistant. I studied, started studying resiliency. And that's when I got introduced to the concept of resilience. And then I came to Arizona for graduate school. And while here, I became a, a what's called a high needs case manager, and it's essentially uh, a person who has a caseload of of youth who are um, in out of home placement. Some are at home and at risk of out of home placement. We have a caseload, and our goal is to provide the families or the children with services um, to help their improve their lives. And so, I had a lot of kids in foster care on my caseload, and I realized that I am several states away, and about fifteen to uh, 20 years later, and the youth were experiencing the exact same thing, Lynn, that I experienced in Illinois when I was younger. They didn't have the skill set to transition successfully into adulthood. 
And so what I did when I had that caseload for two years, I collected data from them. I said, hey, you're going to age out. What's your plan? What do you need? What resources do you feel like you need? And I I collected that and compiled that data. And then I started uh, Resilient Me based off my personal experience and the data I collected from youth. Okay. Wow, that's quite a journey. And and I'm just so excited that you that you jumped on that opportunity to create something new that could help the young people. Yes. And and it's it's interesting to to hear you say the words jumped on it. I didn't feel like I jumped on it. I felt frustrated. I felt annoyed, like, how is this still happening? And how is this not just an Illinois problem? And I've later learned that it's a statewide problem. And it's just, I was fresh. I was like, okay, what can I do? I don't want to just complain. That's not helpful. What can I do to better the lives of these young adults? And so um, when I gathered the um, data from them, I developed a curriculum um, and it's founded in resiliency. And so it's like, okay, you told me they needed a course, as we know, supports. We know that every child especially a child in foster care, but every child is one um, caring adult away from success. So what that looked like when youth were talking to me, they were like, I feel like no one cares about me. And so I built that into curriculum of teaching them how to develop and establish a healthy support network on their own, um, how to identify what's what's healthy in a relationship and what to look for and how they can also, what's their part. And it's not to go out into the world and say, hey, I need someone to to be my support system, but how to make that relationship reciprocal. Uh, And so that's one of the things that is in the curriculum that I got from the youth of what they're needing. I just wanted to ask, maybe we can pause for a moment. And I think most people do have a sense of what resilience is, but at your organization, how do you define resilience? How do you talk about it? You're right, Lynn. Thank you. You know how it's something that you've done so long, you forget that you have to explain the basics. You're absolutely right. So can I uh, can I start by defining resilience or how we define resilience? Yes. Um, so we define resilience as the ability to overcome or and or adapt to um, adversity, challenges, obstacles, um, trauma. Right. And so we know that being taken away from your family, regardless of the reasons being taken away from your biological family is a trauma in itself. And so I'll just use myself as an example. It doesn't matter what my mom did to me or didn't do to me in neglect. I always wanted my mom. That's just a natural human bond and response to want to be connected to your biological parents. And so to be taken from your parents is a very traumatic event. And so that's trauma number one that our youth experience who are in foster care. Can I pause just for a moment? Of course. I want to make note that even if you're leaving a situation that you know is very bad yes, and that you know that you will be better off yes. leaving that situation, it is still traumatic. Yes, 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 very much so. It is, it is that, that these are your parents. This is your normal, right? This is your normal. And, and to be taken away from, taken out of that is, is very traumatic. So that's trauma. Wanting then to be placed in the home of strangers and or in a, a group setting, that's another. Tra- I don't know these people. I don't know these sounds. I don't know these smells. They don't know what food I like. So these are just a couple of the traumas there. I could go on, Lynn, and I want <laughs> for the sake of time. But 
Um, psychologists and clinicians agree that one of the best combatants of trauma is to be resilient. I've read that. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of research. <laughs> and what that means is, yes, these things have happened to you. And there is a skill set that can be learned. They also agree that resilience can be uh, taught. I'm sorry, that can be taught and it can be learned. Um, There is a skill set that you can learn that will uh, keep the trauma from hindering your growth and progression in life. And so that's how we are founded and grounded. It's we're going to equip young adults with the skill set to allow them to progress in spite of the things that are happening to them. We're not erasing the things that are happening because you cannot do that, but teach them that, yes, these things happen and you can still be an attorney, a judge, a clerk, a politician, a bus driver, whatever you want to be and and letting them know that. And so what I've seen, Lynn, is that when I work with the youth a lot is that it's, and I used to struggle with this myself as well as I am a foster kid and that's it. And it's like, no, 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 you're a foster kid and you can do these other things as well. Right. And that is the foundation of our organization. And I think part of my understanding of resilience is that there is an element of optimism that you can see beyond your current situation, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's what I was trying to uh, state when I was saying and. And so you're right, it's you're not just you're not only there is all this huge world out there that is open to you and let's explore your skills. And, and we focus on that a lot, Lynn, because a lot of our youth don't have people saying, oh, my goodness, I noticed that this is something you like to do. This could be something you can change into a career. And so teaching them that um, and saying, yes, you've experienced foster care, but you're a great artist. You're a great spokesperson. You're a great advocate. Those kinds of things. So yes, that sense of optimism and saying, yes, bad things happen, but that doesn't mean bad things will continue to happen. And uh, I want to focus on what I, uh, what good things that can come of my life after foster care. Right, exactly. And also that you can learn from mistakes. That The reality is in life, bad things will happen on occasion. Correct. And then the question is, well, what are you going to do about it? And yeah. to me, again, when I think of resilience, I think of this idea of, well, this bad thing just happened to me, which is, you know, awful, hate it. But now I'm going to pick myself up and go in a different direction or try something different than I tried before so that I can keep moving on. Lynn, you are absolutely correct. One of the things that I tell uh, when I'm meeting with funders uh, to explain what we do, I tell them is we're we're not giving them skills to just transition from foster care to adulthood. We're giving them skill set for life like that, as you just said, because um, the trauma of, of their childhood is not going to be the only trauma or adversity that they face. There will be other ones, as you said. There will be challenges because life is has ups and downs, and they utilize that same skill set of what are my coping skills? What what do I do to calm down? Who do I talk to? Who do I have for support? Those things we utilize throughout our lives, not just in during that transition from foster care to adulthood. So you're absolutely right. And I always tell people that these are lifelong lessons that we are equipping youth with, not just transition lessons. Right. Absolutely. And it, I call them intangible strengths Yes, that you have, that you can build through tangible practice. Yes. But it's the intangible strengths that really 
make people successful. You can learn how to interview for a job. You can learn how to fill out a resume and you can learn how to study. Those are all skills that are good and you need to have them to succeed. But what's really going to be the core of success will be those intangibles, the resilience, the relationships and so forth. Do you do you agree with that? Lynn, I feel like you have been in several of my meetings because you're saying things <laughs> that I say when I'm talking to people. I totally 100% agree, Lynn. You are Dead on the nose with that. Yes, yes, 100%. That is accurate. These are skills that transition into all sorts of uh, areas of their lives, their relationship, not only with themselves, but with their coworkers, um, how to handle conflict, how to manage their emotions, as well as a, a big part of being resilient, being able to identify and manage your own emotions, um, that self-regulation, which is something that a lot of our youth have not been taught. And Lynn, I have to be honest here and say, I've actually talked to a lot of adults who actually have not learned that either, um, how to identify that that key part of identifying that emotion um, and, and how that will transcend to helping them have healthy relationships, personal, interpersonal, in their workplace, when they are applying for those jobs, it transitions to all areas of their lives. Studying for tests when they're in school, it's like, okay, identify, oh, I'm feeling stressed right now. I need to take a break versus not understanding the cues and trying to push through that and then having a meltdown. So it, the resiliency is so vital because it, it hits all areas, every area of your life. It helps you improve vastly. Do you believe that you somehow had inherently this resilience in yourself because you did well in school, which means you applied yourself, even though you probably didn't have to, but you did. And when things went bad for you financially uh, after uh, you aged out, you turned yourself around, you got in touch with the right people. You said, hey, I need help. Could I get some housing? You got the help that you needed so that you could move on. So do you believe you had that inherently in yourself? And then what do you do with your young people to try to build that? What are some of the, the more tangible practice that they can do to help build that in themselves? I love that question, Lynn. Uh, it's, I, I'm going to try to make my answer as short as possible. So I learned about uh, resilience in undergraduate school. It was developmental psychology. And I, I remember going up to my professor after and saying, well, why is it that my, we were talking about developmental uh, ages and milestones. I said, well, why is it that my sister and I went through the exact same experience and I am this way and she is this way? And she said, you are inherently more resilient than she is. And so I would say, yes, initially I used to always say, yes, I'm more resilient than she is. But as I, I learned more about it, I learned, actually learned that I had more protective factors than she did. And what do you mean by protective factors for those who might not know that term? So protective factors are, are these things that can help you enhance your resiliency or help soften the blow of trauma. An example of a protective factor, my sister and I had different dads. My dad was not consistent in my life, but I knew who he was and I would see him sometimes. That's a protective factor. My sister, on the other hand, had no idea who her dad was and never met him. So that 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 serviced her in a negative way of, of not fully loving herself and, and not identifying with someone who loves her. I felt loved by my dad. That's a protective factor. Okay. Um, I had adults say things to me and uh, like, oh, you're smart. Um, and so that made me, that made school become one of my coping 
skills. I didn't realize it at the time because I was then rewarded when I did well. Um, and so I would say, yes, I was more resilient, but I, I had those protective factors that some people aren't necessarily uh, able to have. Well, I was just, and I know I asked about what you do with your young people, but it seems like there's a, there's an in-between step when you have your young people coming in that there might be some way to assess what protective factors they have had or haven't had so that you have an idea of what you need to shore up in their lives. Thank you. That's exactly where I was going. And so how I do that, uh, we, we do a couple activities because with youth, they get bored easily. And so we do a couple of different activities. I develop a deck of cards, Lynn, and, and we talk about feelings. And then the feelings talk about, I learn like what, uh, how they're feeling about themselves, not just in the moment, like I feel scared or sad or lonely, but how they're actually feeling about themselves. Like I feel stupid. I don't feel uh, worthy, those kinds of things. And then also I have a um, sheet that I hand them out and they have to answer questions about what their life is like and what they drink for themselves. So one of the questions is, uh, my family is, and they have to complete the sentence. And those kinds of questions help me to understand um, what protective factors of any. And then I, I utilize the ACEs. I've heard of that. Yeah. So the ACE, uh, so it's ACE is a one to 10. And, and if you have a high ACE score, low ACE score, we do that. And then also we purchase a resilience scale from two psychologists and I test their level of resiliency at the beginning and then at the end to ensure that they are in actually increasing their resiliency. So these are all the things I do. And as we're going and youth are opening up and sharing, I'm learning what protective factors they have and, and then showing them say, oh, I remember you said um, your grandmother has always uh, believed in, in your artwork. Um, have you shown her any lately? Are you able to have contact and just helping them? What the goal is to guide them to critically think on their own and not give them the answers because I won't always be there. Does that make sense? And so learning their protective factors, learning what they are good at, what natural skill sets they have, and then teaching them to utilize and enhance them on their own is uh yes is is what we do and and in the tangible ways is what I've said with the the um so how I assess is those assessments I told you the ace uh score the resilience and I got this one uh, another one from the Casey family where they talk about the supports that you have and how we do it what it looks like is I have the youth I'll give you an example there's a thing that we do and this is how you're developing your uh resiliency I have the youth pair up. And I usually work in groups. I always work in groups, never individual because I'm not a clinician. And working in groups is important because not only do they learn to receive support from their peers, but they learn to be supportive of their peers. And so this group setting is so important. So we're in groups, they're pairing up. And I set up an obstacle course uh, in the backyard, typically. And I say, okay, pair up. One person's blindfolded. So Lynn, you and I paired up. You're blindfolded. I'm not. And uh, the facilitator whispers in your ear, you're blindfolded, you have to get to the gold star. The facilitator whispers in my ear, I have to get you through the obstacle course without touching you. So everyone goes through, goes through, goes through. We come back together. So now I'm the facilitator. And I say, for the, those who were blindfolded, raise your hand if you've gotten to the gold star. And Lynn, I've done this with adults and uh, young adults. And about 5 to 7% get to the gold star. And I say, why didn't you get to the gold star? And they say, I was blindfolded. And I say, huh, was your partner blindfolded? And then the light bulb goes off. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, I should have asked my partner to help me. And so it's not for me to give them the answers. It's for them to teach them to critically think and think differently. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. 
And so for the other partner, I say, were you able to get land through the blind, through the obstacle course? And the partner's like, no, land didn't listen. I told her to go <laughs> left. Like she went right. <laughs> I told her to go this way. She went that way. I said, but eventually, were you able to get her through the obstacle course? And they say, yes. And I said, well, it sounds like you had to learn to communicate in a way that Lynn needed to understand, right? And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. I realized when I talked like this, she got it. And I said, well, how does this apply in the real world? Mm -hmm. So these are tangible things that we do in the workshops to help the youth increase their resiliency Mm -hmm. and have this skill set and these tools that they can utilize for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Well, these workshops that you put on, is that the primary service that you offer as these youth come to you and they attend workshops? Um, and if, if it's more than that, could you just explain really kind of big picture how your program works? Yes, ma'am. So I, uh, we go to uh, the group homes. We never have the youth come to us. Uh, it's too difficult with transportation. And, and so it's, it, uh, we always go to the group homes and, and we work 99% of group homes. Uh, and, and sometimes organizations, there's a, local, a couple of local organizations here. Uh, that that work with youth, they'll pull a, a couple group homes together and provide us with a facility. But typically, we go into group homes, and that way, also the thing is they're in a, a setting that's familiar to them, and 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 so it it also decreases that that anxiety. It's it's somewhere they they're familiar with, and so we go into the group homes, and the workshops are an hour long, and. It's uh, very interactive. It's never just one person talking, the facilitator. Um, I do probably 60 60 to 70% of the workshops. And so I'll talk from my perspective. So I go into the group homes and I get to know them and I tell my story, which forms that, uh, that starts to form that level of trust because I've been where they are. And then we do the exercise with the cards that I told you about, the here you're filling cards and they shuffle through the cards and there's 52 and they talk about their feelings and they say, so if it were me, I would say, I would put out the card nervous, excited. I would put out those two cards and they could put out as many as they want. And, and then I would say, I'm nervous because I don't know if Lynn's going to think I'm a good speaker. And I'm excited because I get to share my story. And so they, they start to open up and it's teaching them to, as I said, how important it is in, in being resilient, identifying your own feelings, right? So it's teaching them to do that and then helping them to feel comfortable expressing their emotions, which is so important as well. And then the third part of that, Lynn, is they have a fully attentive adult who is there listening to them as they talk and, and who is caring and saying, I care about how you're feeling. So those are the three things of that. And so that how the workshops open. And then there is an activity, which I told you, like the obstacle course. Um, there's another activity of uh, the, the lifeline activity where we talk about you draw a line, literal line across your paper. And you mark off periods that have been important in your childhood and only talk about what you feel comfortable all the way up to your future about what you want to do in your future. We've done that. Another one is uh, one that I love because I see the most uh, tangible progress with this one. This one's my favorite. As I say, it's your you're 65. You're at your retirement party where you're retiring from. Who's there? How did you get to where you are? And this is during a workshop. Uh, and so at one group home, I, it was a girls group home. And one young lady said, well, I don't want to do this stupid activity. I'm not going to live past 21. And inside land, I was dying. I was like, oh, no, don't say that. That's horrible. But I, I had to, you know, maintain and regulate the mood of the group. And so I said, why do you feel that way? And she talked. And so we, we progressed through the weeks, right, of the workshop. 
And then at the end, uh, two days before the graduation, we did the activity again. I say, you're 65. Because one of the things is helping them realize that they can dream. And so we do it again. And so we did it again. And the same young lady said, okay, I think when I'm 25, I'm going to move to California. And when I'm this age, I'm going to get married. And when I'm this age, and when I had to grab my seat to keep them standing up and clapping, I was so excited. Um, And so those kinds of things. And then, so that's an activity that we do. And then we wrap it up by saying, How can we take this activity we did and apply it to the real world? Because it's very important for them to internalize it um, and then learn to critically think through it. And so we do that. uh, And that's what it looks like. And so it's the opening with the cards, the activity, and then the wrap up. And that's our hour. And it's weekly. Uh, We go in every week for about um, 10 to 12 weeks. It's awesome. And it's, uh, it's a lot at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do organizations, um, I have two questions. How do organizations partner with you and how far do you travel for these? Oh my goodness. Len, listen, (laughs) (laughs) I travel pretty far. So group homes are all across, uh, what we call the Valley here in Phoenix. So it's Phoenix and the surrounding suburbs. Mm -hmm. And so I travel up to, I've driven up to an hour East of me, um, to group homes an hour just to get there and then an hour to do the program and then an hour back. Yeah. I travel a lot and how we partner with other organizations is there, uh, there's a larger organization here that is contracted with the state to provide, Uh, services for youth who are aging out. And they bring us in uh, probably once a year and sometimes twice a year to do our program with a group of their kiddos. Also, ASU, um, Arizona State University here, they they have a program called Bridging Success and Early Start, where they focus specifically on youth who have lost, who've left foster care now in college. They bring us in as well to do our programming. We partner with um, this agency, uh, a couple of local agencies that focus on career, but they were like, we're giving the kids jobs, but they don't seem to keep them. They're yelling at their boss. They're not coming out to work. It's, and I said, I know, I'm not surprised. And they're like, we don't understand why. I was like, because we need those very important, to quote your words, and I usually actually use the words too, intangible skills to help them stay in that job. If they're not feeling worthy of that job or they think they don't understand the purpose of this job, of course they self-sabotage. And so we partner with these organizations to provide, provide a more comprehensive um, programming for our youth. And so that's how we partner. So the, with the jobs one, they did their part with here are the jobs. And I came in and said, here are some soft skills, as we like to call them, to enhance that. And so we do, we partner with our agent, with local agencies here, and we travel far, Lynn, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but not far enough. My goal as I'm trying to grow Resilient Me is for us to be statewide. And so we're only valley-wide. And, and please don't ask me what that means in miles. <laughs> I, I, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we, I, I personally travel far. And as we grow, of course, I won't have to do most of the work. Um, I'll, I'll be able to have staff across the state. And so the goal is to, to because I, I want to impact the lives of more youth. Um, and, and I'm hearing from the youth and the staff about how we are impacting lives. Uh, can I share a story with you that I love to share, Lynn? Sure. So I was I was in a um, a setting. So this facility had brought me in to uh, work with their youth, and so this was a, a male and female group. And I was working with the group, and then a new young lady came in, and she said, "Who is you?" And I was like, <laughs> "And I was like, oh hi, I'm Nikita. 
I come in every week and we work on what I call life skills. And what we're doing now are the filling cards. Uh, well, do you want to join us with the filling cards? How do you feel? And she said, I feel like my MF and self. And I said, <laughs> I said, I get that. Uh, and that's a pivotal moment right there, Lynn. That is a pivotal moment right there. So uh, what I notice a lot of adults do is, is, is they internalize things. And I love to tell adults the Q-tip method, quit taking it personally. So I could have said, who is this young lady coming in? Uh, yelling and and having this tone with me, I could have taken that approach. But that's not that's not why I'm there. I I don't take it personally. I knew it had nothing to do with me. So when she said, I feel like my MF and self, I said, I get that. You're right. That kind of sounds like a a odd question because you are yourself. And so you would feel like yourself. And I said, have you ever felt like happy or sad or scared? And when because I did not meet her with combativeness Mm -hmm. or or authority, she said, yeah, I just got out of juvie. My brother died and I couldn't go to his. And she just unloaded Lynn. Oh, yeah. She felt safe because you didn't confront her. Yes. Yes. And 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 one of the things and uh, growing our, our organization is I, I need adults because I can work with the youth. I can and I love it. But I also need adults to understand the importance of their role in the in the life of these youth because they they have that opportunity to provide that safe space there are too many adults who would have felt like they needed to be in their role of authority at that point when she, when the young lady was speaking like that and it wasn't even about me or she hated the class she was going through something and and so it's so important important and I want adults to realize that it's important that when you're working with youth to quit taking things personally, so the Q-tip method, and but also knowing your own triggers and and your own trauma and working through that, so that you don't feel triggered when a child speaks to you in any tone. Yeah, that's so important. Yes. Hmm. One thing I want to call out here is that you know it's obvious in this current COVID nineteen that your work must be impacted by that. It is because you get together with these young people personally, and we're not allowed to do that. I assume that's the case in Arizona, that you are not to get together. So how are you managing through that right now? So here's what's happening. So we have lost, and I say lost as in uh, temporarily suspended, uh, from several group homes. So group homes have said, hey, we have to social distance. But I've had to one to three group homes that have said, no, our, our youth are, they're not going to school. They're not out in the world. So we think it's safe. So what our governor did was said, if you're an essential employee, you can continue to go to work. My field is still considered an essential job. And so I have three group homes that I still go to um, and work with the youth, but I have several that I no longer work with, which I, I totally understand. And I have to be honest, Lynn, I, I'm very nervous when I I work with the youth, although staff is telling me that they're not going out into the world. Uh, I'm still nervous about contracting the virus, but I also want to be able to be there for them during this difficult time, this this unprecedented time of you're, they're isolated. And let think about it. They already feel isolated from their families, from their um, friends that they knew when they lived with their families. And now here's a 
bigger, larger, new isolation period for them. And so that's what I've been hearing from kids is like, what's happening is I'm, I'm hearing a lot of depression and I'm seeing a lot of depression in the youth of, of, of feeling that isolation. Human beings are sociable creatures, but especially during this developmental time that they're in right now, it's like they need to see their friends and socialize. We know young adults are so social and uh, it's it's challenging. And I'm just what I'm focusing on doing this uh, COVID-19 period in the group homes that we're still working in is um, trying to find ways to enhance or improve uh, how they think of socializing. And so it started with it's it's like normal uh, I would say sibling rivalry where they're in the group home and so they're fighting because they're getting on each other's nerves. But talking to them about hey these, this is your social network right now. What can you do to support each other to have fun together while we're in this isolation period? And so trying to walk them through that and trying to think about things differently. The optimism that you and I spoke about earlier, um, focusing in on that. Also a big thing is what are the hobbies, right? And so it's like, oh, I don't have anything to do. I'm so bored is what I hear all the time. So, you know, they love when I come because it's like, oh, a fresh face. And then I always bring candy and they're like, yes, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so talking about like, what are some hobbies that we can do? You know, let's draw, let's write, let's journal, let's bead. Um, I work with a lot of children who are uh, native. And so let's let's do some bead work. What, What can we do? hobbies to keep our minds busy. And then also validating, Lynn, validating. It's okay to be bored. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel these feelings and, and, and helping them process and work through that. Mm -hmm. And this isn't necessarily, or maybe it's, is part of your regular programming, but maybe not as emphasized as you are right now. Exactly. You're absolutely right. So in in its core, yes, it's a part of our programming, but I would say modified is the word I would use Mm -hmm. um, for COVID-19. It's been modified. Exactly. Yes. And I would imagine since your activities are so experiential that it would be very difficult to have the same results online. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because I laugh because I thought of that. I was like, okay, how can I I, I thought I was like, okay, I can just zoom with them, but no, it, it doesn't work. Um, it's it's the one computer, not each child. Think about it. It would be okay if every child had a computer. They don't. Right. Yeah. And so it would probably be a shared computer. And, and then it's like, they're fighting over who is in the camera the most. And yeah, it would be very difficult uh, to do online. If you can think of a way, I'm, I, I'm open to it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will let you know if something comes to mind. Maybe our listeners will uh, give you some ideas too. Oh my goodness, please share. <laughs> I, I did want to ask uh, for when all of this is and we're through, you know, the worst of it and, and we're starting to come back together as a society. If a, a group home, university, if somebody, uh, a group of young people, if they wanted to work with you and bring you to them for uh, for these workshops, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, that is a good question. And so uh, on our website, resilientme.org, there is our contact information. And so it's um, our phone number on, is on there and our email address is on there. Um, and our email is just info at resilientme.org. And so an email would get to us and then we would discuss how we move forward as far as providing our services. So our website is the easiest way to get in contact with us. Okay. And do you accept donations? 
Oh my goodness, Lynn. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody wanted to help you out that way, is it the same contact information? It is. Everything is on our website. And and I was going to, and also we are on social media. So we post predominantly on Facebook, but we also post on Instagram and a little bit on Twitter, but mostly uh, Facebook followed by Instagram. And that is a, a way I've had people get in contact with us via social media as well. And it's just Facebook and it's resilientme.org. And then say, I mean, I'm sorry, resilientme. And then on Instagram, it's also Instagram.com forward slash resilient me. And then as far as donations, we are a nonprofit. We we survive off of the kindness uh, and generosity of uh, donations. And so I'm glad you said that. We do not charge group homes when we provide our services. We go into the group homes, provide our services, and how we are able to do that is through generous donations from individuals and foundations and corporations, and that's how we're able to provide the services to the group homes. Now, when we partner with larger organizations like ASU, uh, and there's a few other ones here in the Valley that we partner with, there is a, a fee Uh, that we charge those organizations, uh, the larger ones. But when it's a group home, our services are are, uh, free of charge to them. Wow, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. Yes, but it's only due to the generous, generous donations of individuals, foundations, and corporations. Right. So I encourage everyone. I love this this work that you're doing and really focusing on the resilience and helping the young people through several weeks. It's not just a once and done, but several weeks of really internalizing and thinking about how to apply these things that hopefully the majority, maybe not all the youth, that would be, you know, quite the expectation, but the majority look at things differently because of the experience of going through your workshops. And and I love that because hopefully, like you've mentioned a couple of examples, some of these young people who are not looking ahead and thinking about their life and how it could be better, start to do so. Exactly. 100%. And it's difficult, Lynn. What happens is the youth are in survival mode. I I have to, I don't know where I'm going to, I don't know how long I'm going to be in this group home. I don't know if my clothes are going to be stolen from this group home. They're in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, it's difficult to think about your future because you're thinking about surviving right now. And so providing that space of teaching them how to transition from survival mode thinking to thinking about having optimism, trying to think positively about their lives themselves and their future is is so key and pivotal to the services we provide. Right. Well, I tell you what, I have so many more questions I wanted to ask. Um, I'll just ask one more and it has to do, because I, I try to ask something around the concept of what can the system do better? And one of the things that you said at the very start about the transitional housing support that you had in the extended foster care, not all states have extended foster care. So what would be your thoughts about ensuring that all states do? But then also it struck me, I wonder if all states should provide, I mean, just like this is a given. You go through foster care, you age out, here's transitional living with support until you're 21 so that you can learn to live on your own and get ready to be independent. What, what's your thoughts around that idea? Lynn, I feel like you're inside of my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll get out. <laughs> So I'm actually uh, working on a fellowship right now, and, and the focus of my fellowship is exactly what you and I are talking about. What I, it's been my passion for years that every state, all 50 states, should provide mandatory services for youth actually until you're 25. Here is why, Lynn. 
the part of your brain that is responsible for reasoning is not even fully developed until you're 25. And so to ask these youth to go out and make adult decisions and their brain is still developing is setting them up for failure. And so I feel like the age should be, all 50 states should extend uh, supports as far as housing, and there should be mandatory resilience and trauma training um, until the age of 25. I would imagine, though, that there might be young people who are more ready earlier than, than others. Oh, my goodness, for sure. No, 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 for sure. So you might have young people who are like, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test out all, all of this. <laughs> and then they can, you go, go, start your life. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, for sure. You And that, of course, is not all encompassing. There will be some young people who are ready, but we need to have that that as a default. And then we're able to provide uh, success for more youth versus the opposite of we're assuming that more people are ready than are. Right. And the tough part, I know, with a lot of the programs right now that extended foster care is optional. So many foster youth are like, I'm done. Yeah. I, I don't want to be told what to do anymore. I don't want to be in this group living situation. I'm done. And so they don't opt in and and they lose out, unfortunately. Yes. And, and I don't know if you remember, but I told you when I was 18, I was one of them. And I was like, oh, I know everything. I got this. And then lo and behold, I, I didn't have it and I didn't know everything. Um, and that's why I want it to be mandatory. That, that daughter that I have when I was 18, she's now 25 and she still calls me, Lynn. She's like, mom, how do I make this? How do I purchase this? How do I budget this? And these questions that she can ask me um, all through her twenties that our young adults who are aging out don't typically have that resources, be able to call a family member and say, how do I do these things? So providing that safety net, uh, the safety net a little longer um, provides that stronger launching pad for them when they're ready to um, be more independent. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think programs like yours, the others I've interviewed, Franco Vega and Brittany Kindle and Rhonda Safford so far with their programs can be models for should the states decide to go down this road, there are a lot of programs out there that can be benchmarked and say, look, this is working. Yes. Let's incorporate this element into the programming. Yes, 100%. I agree with you. Yes. And and so we have this great idea. How do we make this happen, Lynn? <laughs> That's another episode down the road. <laughs> So with that, I, I know that um, that our time has come to a close here. So I want to thank you so much, Nikita, for sharing information about your program, about yourself. I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, what you have shared with us. And I know that the listeners have also, hopefully, uh, as I have been enlightened by the the model that you have started, and uh, and I do wish you all the luck moving forward, and hope that you can get back to your the regular workshop programming that you have with the group homes uh, here very shortly. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. And I am grateful for the opportunity to share a little bit about what we're doing. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to say goodbye and uh, I wish you well. And for those of you who have listened uh, to the end, please keep an eye on the podcast page because we will be putting out another podcast in just a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode's show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. 
If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast-level patron on Patreon. For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash agingoutinstitute. Thank you so much for considering it, and thank you for listening. Until next time.